0: If you'll turn to Luke chapter 6, and we're going to read through Luke 6, 12 through 19. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, And Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Let's go before the Lord
1: again. Jesus, as we bow our heads in prayer, I can't help but beginning by giving thanks to you because today... Is the 28th birthday of the day that I came to know you. And I'm so grateful to you, Jesus. And it just so happens that it falls on a Sunday, and it was a Sunday morning that I got saved early in the morning, two, two, three o'clock in the morning. I'm just so grateful to you for 28 years of grace. I'm so grateful that it's the smallest taste of an eternity of what everybody who believes in you will experience. So praise be to your name. And Lord, I remember that very morning I went back to the place where I was living and I told what you had done for me to a friend of mine named Robert and he did not believe but Kim and I prayed for him for 25 years and three and a half years ago Lord you know that he came to believe in you And I got to visit with him a couple of weeks ago, Lord, and oh, what a sacred 24 hours that was as we rejoiced in you and talked about the Bible and theology and missions and what God might do through the two of us and the grace that we have shared. And I just want to give glory to the name of Jesus Christ that you are the living God who is still saving and shaping and transforming lives. You're no dead historical character that we look back at like we're looking at a museum piece or something like that. We celebrate you the living Christ and I pray that you would come today and show us that not only are you alive and well in this world but that you're alive and well in this very room today that you're here to work in our lives today you're not here just to have us go through the motions of another church service but you're here to meet us and shape us and challenge us and change us and forgive us and transform us into your image so I give you my thanks Lord For who you are, I give you my thanks for what you have done. I give you my thanks for what you will do here this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, we are continuing today in our series through the Gospel of Luke. And I want to begin by saying a few words about how Luke has laid out his book to this point. Because I think if we see something of the pattern that's in Luke uh, thus far... It'll give us some insight into what he's up to in the chapters that are before us. So if you'll flip back to chapter 1 with me, we're just going to skim through this. This will go pretty quick. But I just kind of want to give you a sense of the outline that I see in Luke. So chapters 1 and 2, you'll notice there are the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. There tells us about the prophecies of the births of both John and Jesus. And then he tells us about the actual events of their birth. And then at the very end of chapter 2, you'll notice that he skips ahead 12 years and just tells us the smallest story about a time when Jesus was in the temple of God at 12 years old. And most of you know that at 12 years old, a Jewish boy became a man, and so I think the reason that Luke inserted that little story there was to sort of close up Jesus' childhood, and to show us already how far this young man had progressed in the things of God. So basically, chapters 1 and 2 are about the birth narratives in the childhood of Jesus. Then beginning with chapter 3, verse 1, and going through chapter 4, verse 13, the Lord, uh, Luke tells us about the preparation for Jesus' public ministry. So you'll remember that we talked there about the ministry of John the Baptist. We talked about the baptism of Jesus. We talked about the genealogy of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. All of these things were necessary elements in his preparation for public ministry, and if those things had not occurred, if those things were not said, Jesus could not have been who he was. He could not have done what his father sent him to do. So that season of preparation was extremely important. And then beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, and going through chapter 6, verse 11, there is what I call the, the just the early pre-apostolic ministry of Jesus. And what I mean by that is that that is the the time when Jesus was engaging in public ministry, but before he appointed the apostles. So from the middle of chapter four to the middle of chapter six, it's Jesus in the world, on the move, in the power of the spirit, preaching the gospel, doing signs and wonders to confirm the message he was preaching, giving glory to God, and yet without the apostles at this time of his life. Chapter six, verse 12 Then tells us of a time when Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, he came back down and he appointed the apostles. And from there to the end of chapter eight is phase one of Jesus' uh, training of the apostles. I call this boot camp because this is Jesus just teaching them directly. And then if you'll just quickly look at chapter nine, verses one and two, I'm not going to read them, but you'll see there if you'll just skim read them real quick that in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Jesus actually now commissions the apostles, only the 12, and he sends them out into the world. So chapter 6, 7, and 8 are like boot camp. We get to chapter 9, and he sends them into the world to begin doing the things that he has been teaching them, the things that he has been showing them. So the plan is that today we'll look at this first phase, sort of boot camp, if you will, and then if the Lord is willing, we'll look at chapter 9 next week and just meditate a little bit together about what happened when Christ sent people out on, on their own, obviously with his spirit, but not with his, his physical presence. So with that, let's turn back to chapter 6, verse 12, and I just want to reread for us the first two verses there, 12 and 13. Luke writes, in these days, he, Jesus, went on out to the mountain to pray, and all Night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came and the sun rose, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Now, given the reality of who Jesus Christ is and given the reality of the power that had already been pouring through his life in situation after situation, I wonder why he had to pray about this decision at all, appointing the 12 apostles, and especially why he prayed All night long. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've been a part of a couple all night long prayer meetings for church things, but I've never personally been so gripped by a need to pray that I have just personally and privately decided not to sleep so that I could seek the face of God. Given who Jesus is, given the fact that the Spirit was upon him, why did he need to pray like that? My answer is that Jesus was fully God, true, true. But Jesus was also fully a man, 100% a man. Matt, just like you told me the other day when we met, it's not like Jesus was 50% God, 50% man. It's a mystery, but he's 100% God, he's 100% man. And as a man, Jesus was a dependent, submissive son of his father who was constantly seeking his will. And how do we seek the will of God? But by paying attention to the word of God and talking with the God of the word. And so what I see in Jesus spending all night long, what I see as I meditate and pray upon that is I see a humble, submissive son who knows that he is absolutely dependent upon the will of his father, the wisdom of his father, the insight of his father, the power of his father, specific information from his father. He was about to make a decision that was literally going to have eternal consequences he is about to name 12 people to 12 positions that they would hold forever. Unless you think that I'm exaggerating, let me just remind you of Revelation chapter 21 verse 14. You don't need to turn there because this will go quick. But Revelation 21 verse 14, John is describing the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the bride of Christ, and he writes, "And the wall of the city had 12 foundations." And on them were t- the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, I don't think that city is going to go anywhere forever. <laughs> the city's going to last forever. And so forever, there are the names. You know, John, Peter, James, whoever else. Jesus was about to make a decision that had eternal consequences. It was a serious moment, and he did not want to act on his own. As a perfect, submissive son, he sought the will of his father, and he wanted the will of his father more than he wanted sleep. Have you ever wanted God like that, beloved? Like I've told you, I've stayed up all night long many times with church events But I gotta tell you, I feel convicted. I have never in my personal private life craved the will of God so much that I forsook sleep. But this is the heart of Jesus Christ. Humble, dependent, submissive. And I just love this about him. You know, I was praying about all this this week and I I realized that this isn't just a a way of life that Jesus lived then. This is a way of life that Jesus is living now and will live forever forever. You remember maybe from our time in Hebrews, chapter seven, verse 25, where the author of Hebrews said that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is praying for us by name, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred sixty-five days a year, and three sixty-six on leap years. He never stops. He is always praying. And an intercessor is one who stands before God and the people. And since Jesus Himself is God, I don't a hundred percent understand how this works. But what I do know is that He stands there as a submissive son to His Father, understanding the will of His Father, and then He intercedes for our lives according to the will of his Father. Sometimes we pray to things, to Christ for things and we don't get them. And the reason we don't get them is because Jesus can't grant them. And the reason he can't grant them is because he is praying for us according to his Father's will. He wants that for us more than anything. And if I want something for myself that's outside of God's will, he will do good to me and refuse me that thing. He wants me to be in God's will. He wants you to be in God's will. And so still now and forever, even though he is very God of very God, even though he blazes with the glory of God, the writer of Hebrews says, and he perfectly represents the nature of God, even Jesus is humble, submissive, calling upon the name of his Father, seeking the will of his Father, beloved, such is our God. And I'll tell you, if the sermon stopped right here, I would just be in total awe of him. I'm blown away by this guy. Very high, very humble, very strong, very submissive, very powerful, and yet very much willing to do whatever his father wants him to do. And so he listens. He listened to his father. And when the day broke, when the sun rose up over the horizon... He decided it was time to go down to his disciples, and he called them all to him. And I picture in my mind that there were lots of disciples there. And in their presence, in their very hearing, it says he chose the 12, I believe, according to the will of his father, and he called them apostles. We'll talk about that title another time, perhaps when we get to Acts. But right now, the main thing to understand is that by the will of his father, he chose these and he appointed these to play a certain kind of role. This is a story of the submissive Christ doing the will of his father with eternal and happy consequences. After he had done this, The Bible says that he went down to a level place where he gathered with all of his disciples and with a great crowd that had come from near and far. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile regions, so people were coming from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Tyre, from Sidon, anywhere that they were. If they could get to Christ, they came to Christ, and they met him there on the plain right after he had uh, appointed the apostles. And Luke just says there at the end that they came to hear him preach. They were moved by the word of God, coming through him they came to be healed of their diseases they came to be uh, freed from spirits that were trapping them that were enslaving them and it says that power came out from Jesus and he healed them all and that's the phrase I want to key in on here today power came out from him I'm actually not going to be able to point all of this out today but in chapter six seven and eight this phrase is repeated several times and so I think that this, this probably is true of him every day of his ministry. But in this section of Luke, Luke is really trying to draw our attention to this. He appoints the apostles, but power came out from him. To me, this is really important. Think about this. He just appointed 12 people to 12 positions of authority that are probably the highest positions of authority in the life of the church forever. And yet, where was the power coming from? The power is coming from him. Even when we see him in chapter 9 send the apostles into the world, beloved, the power is still coming out from him. It says he gave them power to do this and this and that. So don't ever mistake this. It doesn't matter who Jesus appoints to any position. The focus is on him. The power comes from him. He is the source of life. He is the source of healing. He is the source of deliverance. He is the source of all things. Power came out from Jesus. That's the heart of the message today. There's so much material in Luke 6, 7, and 8. I was telling Kimmy, I really honestly wish we were Chinese or Indians, something like that, because I know this Chinese pastor, and he, he, when he has Americans come to him to help preach at his church or whatever, he, he says, if you can't preach for two hours, I don't even want you to stand up. And to be really honest with you, I wish we were different culturally, because I would like to do that today, not not so that I could sit here and talk forever, but so that we could rejoice in the things of Christ forever. But you can do this on your own time. You can meditate through six, seven, and eight. What I want to do is, rather than trying to cover all the material that's there, I just want to highlight for us six different ways that power came out from Christ. And my heart is that we would see his glory, believe in his message, and surrender our lives to him. That's the point of today's message. See the power that is coming from Jesus. Behold his glory. Believe his message. Surrender your life to him. That's what today is about. I pray that God will grant us this desire. So first thing, power came out from Jesus to teach with great authority. If you look there right at that as the text flows along, chapter six, verses 20 through 49, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And if any of you know the gospel of Matthew at all, you know that, that Matthew covers more material. He does the Sermon on the Mountain, three chapters, uh, five, six, and seven. And when you compare Luke's version with Matthew's version, there are some differences. So for instance, in Matthew, he says that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. But Luke writes what? If you look there in your Bibles, what's Luke write? He just says, blessed are the poor, right? Or Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Uh, Luke just says, blessed are those who hunger. And so we could go on and on and show you lots of different examples of this, but you get the point that when you compare these two accounts, they're different in some respects. And I just want to take a few minutes and and address the question, why is that? Why are they different? Are they recording different messages? Is there something wrong with the Bible here or, or what? Well, first of all, it could well be that Luke is simply summarizing the teaching of Jesus rather than trying to precisely quote Jesus. So in our culture, we have a high value on giving precise quotes. But in their day, they weren't so concerned about that. And for them, it was fine to summarize a teacher's teaching without having to get everything just word perfect. And it's possible that Matthew remembered things one way, Luke remembered them another. And basically, they're saying the same things. They don't just record the exact same words. And in fact, I heard Lee Strobel say once that when he, as an investigative journalist, was investigating Christianity... This is one thing that made him believe in Jesus. Because he said that as a journalist, when two or three people tell the exact same story in the exact same words, the one thing you can know for sure is that they're lying. They've fixed the game. They've gotten together and said, hey, here's the talking points. Make sure you say exactly this. When people tell the same story in slightly different words, it lends credibility to it. So it may just be that Luke is, is presenting his memory and Matthew is presenting his memory. It's not that one is right and the other is wrong. This is just what the case was. And, and I'm not saying that the specific words in the Bible don't matter. I'm absolutely not saying that, but I'm trying to deal with a reality that some of the words don't seem to match what's going on here. That's one possibility. Here's another possibility. Jesus preached a lot, and he preached in different places all the time, right? Everywhere he went, it seemed like they wanted him to stay where he was, but he kept saying, no, no, I can't do that. I have been sent to preach in villages and towns all over the place. And I don't imagine that he preached a different message every single time he went everywhere. He probably did enough times, but why wouldn't he basically preach the same, at least the same heart of a message to different people wherever he went? What would be wrong with that? Maybe he preached the Sermon on the Mount more than one time. And maybe in one place he emphasized one thing, in another place he emphasized another, not because he's saying two different things, but because the context called for something different. Have you ever told the same story to two different people and you tell it differently and it's not because you're lying, it's just because there's, the context is different. So it's possible that Christ himself preached certain things multiple times and put slightly different spins on things. One way or the other, what is very clear in this section of Luke and Luke at large is that he really wants to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus cares deeply about the weak, the powerless, the poor, the hungry. He really does. And so Luke wants us to know that Jesus said at times, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. And for Jesus himself, I think he wants us to know that he, as a God of justice, will set things right in the fullness of time. If you look at the end of that section with the Beatitudes, you'll see that in Luke's version, he actually includes some woes. And those woes are really about judgment. The injustices that rightly enrage us in this world, King Jesus wants us to know that when he takes his rightful place, he is going to set those things right. He's going to take utter control over the nations of the world. He will rule them with a rod of iron and with the sword of his mouth, and he will do justice forever. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. I really think this is the heart of the message that he really wants us to get. And another thing I see Jesus doing here is that he wants us to know that those who seek their ultimate treasure in this life, guess what? They're going to get their ultimate treasure in this life. Joel Osteen, a guy who claims to be a a pastor and, and a representative of Jesus, wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. Well, if you want your best life now, then that's the best life you're ever going to get, beloved. Jesus said if you put your hope in another world, you put your hope in another kingdom, to the extent that you're even willing to suffer in this time and space for the glory of God, you will inherit a much greater treasure. And so I think all of the financial themes in this part of Luke are not mainly even about finances. They are mainly about the heart toward finances. There are other parts of Luke where very wealthy people are named, and Jesus was friendly toward them, and he did not rebuke them for their wealth. So I think we know that it's a matter of the heart. Christ is pointing and saying, I'm a God of justice, and I'm a God who loves people and knows that I grant wealth to be stewarded for my glory and the good of others. And when that doesn't happen, I will pronounce justice. I think that that's what's going on here. Now, Everything in my heart wants to just keep going on throughout the Sermon on the Mount because I gained so much by meditating on chapter 6 this week. But I want to, instead of doing that, I want to step back from the specific teachings for a second and I want to just talk about the fact that authority came out from Jesus to teach. That's the main point I'm making here. Now, for years and years, I read these kind of statements in the New Testament, you know, where it says they marveled or they, they were astonished at Jesus because he taught with authority and not like their teachers and their scribes. And for many years, I think I just pictured that as a matter of the kind of charisma that he taught with, the kind of, uh, of, 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 of sort of personality-driven authority that he had, That there was something about how he said what he said that made his message so authoritative. And surely there's some truth in that. But this week as I meditated on the specifics of what Jesus taught, I realized that there's more going on than that here. When it says that people were astonished that he taught with authority, what it means is that Jesus came into the world and declared truth that Moses never spoke and he expected people to submit to his teaching. If you look at the end of chapter 6, the last thing the Lord said here is, listen, if you listen to my teaching and do it, you're like a wise person who built your house on a rock, and if you refuse to listen to my teaching and you do not do it, you're like a fool who built your house on the sand, and the day's going to come when your house is destroyed. He is declaring truth and saying, if you don't listen to me, you are a fool. Now, who have you ever heard teach like that? If I ever get up and teach like that, please fire me immediately. Nobody except God has the right to speak like that. Jesus did not just comment on the law, he laid down the law. Jesus did not just elucidate truth, he declared truth because he has authority over truth and error. What kind of man is this? What kind of God? is this. I think this is what Luke wants us to be thinking about, what he wants us to be praying about, what he wants us to be receiving. He wants us to tremble in the presence of him who can declare a truth and demand allegiance. Second thing. Power came out from Jesus to heal the sick and those who had various diseases. So if you look at the beginning of chapter 7, you'll see that when Jesus finished teaching, he traveled to the city ...called Capernaum. He's been there before. This is up on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets there, he hears about this man, a centurion. And and the centurion had a servant who's, who was sick to the point of just about death. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier who had authority over a hundred people. So you can hear the word century in the word centurion. So this is a ruling person in the Roman army, okay? And he has a servant. The servant is sick and about to die... This centurion has been very kind to the Jews in his city, and so he's heard about Jesus. He wants his servant to be healed, and so he asks the leaders of the Jews in his city to go and find Jesus and ask him to come and heal his servant. And amazingly, they do it. The leaders of the Jews are upset with Jesus, right? But when the chips are down and there's a need on the table, they go to him. So they go to where Jesus is, they tell him the story, and Jesus, moved with compassion for this Gentile man, decides to go. This very much reminds me of Elijah, who was sent to the Gentiles, and Elisha, who was sent to the Gentiles, and now Jesus, the Christ, is being sent to a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, but a Roman, and not just a Roman, but a Roman ruler absolute enemy of the Jewish state it's almost it's not quite this bad but it's almost as if ISIS took over the United States and now Jesus is going to heal some ISIS leader it's like what are you doing what are you thinking why would you do that this is the heart of Jesus Christ so he begins to travel to where the centurion servant is and it says that his disciples in a great crowd followed him he was a magnet for people for a number of reasons And as they're going down the road, I just imagine that the centurion is sitting there waiting on Jesus. I don't know why, but I get a picture of him sort of pacing back and forth in his living room in anticipation. And he realizes who he is. He realizes the things that he's done. He realizes that he's a Gentile. He realizes whatever it is that God puts him on his heart. And he thinks to himself, you know, I am am really not worthy to have this guy even come into my house. I don't know if you've ever felt like that about Jesus. He had such a depth of the sense of the holiness of Christ. It's like his name shouldn't even be named here. His presence shouldn't be felt here. But this guy had faith. And so he sends some of his friends to tell this to Jesus. They get to him and they say, listen, Jesus... The centurion man has said, thank you for coming, but please don't come. I'm not worthy for you to come. And here's the thing. I am a man under authority. I know how massive authority works. I work for the Roman government, who is the most powerful government, not only in my day, but in the history of the world. And I know how authority and power works. And I know that you have that kind of authority. You are under the authority of God. And if all you do is speak the word, I know that my servant will be healed. Jesus is blown away by this. He says to his Jewish followers, he says, wow, I have not even seen faith like this in Israel. I have not even seen faith like this among the people who have walked with the Lord our God for century upon century. This man is a man of faith. And so in tremendous compassion, Jesus speaks the word, and in that very hour it says his servant was healed. No, we know the story, but I pray that God will sort of un our hearts and help us to feel it and see it freshly again for the first time. Because this is amazing. I, I, was, I got a picture in my mind last night as I was praying. We had the father-daughter di- uh, dinner last night, and then my daughter and I just weren't done, so we ended up going to Denny's until 11 or 11.30, just fellowshipping with each other. I got home late, but when I got home, I began to pray. I got this picture in my mind that Jesus, it's, it, he's not like sort of the shaman of this world. He doesn't have to come into a room and burn incense and put all kinds of funny clothes on and do funny dances and do these incantations and whatever else people who have that kind of you know desire in their lives decide to do. He doesn't need to do any of that. In fact, he doesn't even have to be physically present to heal somebody. All he has to do is speak the word, and bam, somebody is healed. And I'll tell you, that is so deeply moving to me because we know Jesus Christ, those of us who are believers in him, but we don't see him physically. He doesn't presently, in a body form, come to church at GCF, right? But we need to be filled with the faith that this is the kind of man who has all authority over disease and sickness. He can heal with only his words. We don't need his physical presence. We don't have to go through all kinds of silly things. In fact, last week, a brother laid hands on another brother in this church and just prayed a simple prayer. And God took away a pain that has been in this other guy's body for weeks and it's been gone to this day. Simple prayer in the hallway. You would have never known about it if I didn't say anything about it. He doesn't have to put on a show. He just speaks the word, bam, people are healed. Power came out from Jesus, third thing. Power came out from him to raise the dead. Now somebody might say, well, if you think about that, raising the dead is really just another form of healing, but I would say that when you talk about raising the dead, it's like it really takes it to the next level, right? Right? And this is healing in a very, very big way. So right after this last story happened, the next thing that happened is Jesus traveled 25 miles to the south and to the west to a little city called Nain. It wasn't very far from Nazareth at all. So he probably had been there as a child. As he walked to the city gate, there was people coming out. They were carrying a man on a plank, a sort of a platform. He was dead, and they were bringing him out to bury him. The Lord sees the mother and sees her weeping. I don't know, maybe Jesus knew the mother from his childhood. Maybe he just heard, but somehow or other, he figured out that she was a widow, and this was her only son, and now the son was dead. And you have to know that in their culture, the social security system for women was to be attached to a male who could provide for her. And so now her husband is dead, her final son is dead. Perhaps she didn't have other family, but surely she would be left without provision. And so the Lord was moved deeply for the fact of the loss of her son, surely, and also for the fact of her financial provision for the rest of her life. And so being deeply moved in his spirit, he looked at her and just simply said, don't weep. And then he did something astonishing. He went near to this plank and he touched it. Now, if you're a Jew, that would horrify you. Because Jewish people are not supposed to come anywhere near to a dead body, even an animal carcass, because it makes you unclean. And in their culture, unclean meant you're no longer fit to be in the presence of God. Everybody who was carrying this young man was unclean. They would not be able to go into the temple to worship for quite some time. They would have to go through ceremonies. Jesus, somehow in his tremendous grace, is perfectly, purely holy. He is very God of very God. Somehow he can touch the unclean without becoming unclean. And that just amazes me about him, and I'm so glad for this truth because if that wasn't true, we would have no hope. He would not be able to draw near to us, amen? He can touch our lives without being stained by the sin that's in our lives, and that's pretty amazing. So he says to the guy, he says, young man, I say to you, get up. And like I said earlier, he didn't need to shout and burn incense and do crazy stuff. I just think he said, get up, it's time to get up. And just like he had been taking a nap, the, the guy sits up on the plank, and he's looking around, and he starts talking to his mom. And I don't know what he said, but I would have been saying, Mom, what's, what's going on? Last thing I remember, I was sitting on the couch at home, and now I'm up on this plank, and what's going on? I don't know what happened. But here, Jesus restores a son to his mother and a mother to her son. And it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And it teaches us something. Christ does not just have the power to heal. He has the power over life and death. What teacher have you ever heard teach that has that kind of power? I've had the privilege, and I know some of you have too, of being in the presence of some great preachers. I remember once in Los Angeles, I went to a Promise Keepers event, and I watched Chuck Swindoll preach. This is the only time I've seen him preach live. There's like 90,000 men in the Los Angeles Coliseum. And he was preaching the gospel with such force that I turned to my friend and I said, Man, I feel like I'm watching the Apostle Paul preach right now. It was so powerful. But Chuck Swindoll does not have the power of life and death. And you name your favorite preacher from our day or from history, they do not have the power of life and death. Christ walks into a room, and he has the right to say, arise, and the person will arise. He has the right to say, no, do not arise, and the person cannot arise. And to me, this demonstration of power over life and death is a metaphor that will help us understand that he has the power over spiritual life and spiritual death. He has the power to grant eternal life or withhold eternal life. He says in John chapter 10, my sheep know my voice, hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I could never say something like that, beloved. He did not say my father gives them eternal life. That would be true, but it's also true for Jesus to say, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who is this man that such power comes out from him that he actually has authority over life and death? I pray that you see his glory and tremble. Fourth thing, power came out from Jesus to deliver people from demons. If you'll flip over to chapter eight, Starting in verse twenty six. I'm not going to say much about this, but just to summarize the story, Jesus now goes to a village south of the Sea of Galilee and east of the of the river of Jordan. I've read some things this week that seem to suggest it was a Gentile city. Others say it was not a Gentile city. I don't really know. I just know that he went south and east of the Sea of Galilee, and he went to a place called uh, the, the area of the Gatherings or something like that. There, he's confronted by this crazy man who was filled with demons and wreaking havoc in his city. Just imagine, uh, I don't know if you know about that little graveyard that's down in Elk River, like on the way to the library and the city hall and all of that. It's actually kind of a nice spot. There's a nice place to park there and meditate. Yes, sometimes your pastor meditates at a graveyard. It's a nice, quiet spot. But I was just imagining this week, what if there was a crazy man who lived in the graveyard, and everybody was scared to death of him. That's what it would have been like to be in this village. He was not sort of your endearing crazy guy, you know? I lived in Berkeley where there was a lot of crazy guys that were just kind of funny and nice to be around. This, was, this guy was not like that. He was physically dangerous and even deadly. You would not want to be around this guy. They actually chained him up time and time again, and he was able to break the chains. He was the crazy guy who lived at the graveyard. It wasn't good. It was not good. Jesus, somehow when he comes to this area, he confronts this guy and he says to the demon, come out of him. The demon shouts back to Jesus and said, let me see, I got the quote here, but I got to. He said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Listen to what a demon is testifying about who Christ is. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. That's just amazing. I can't imagine being one of those in the crowd that was sitting there listening to the demon speak out to Jesus, confirming who he is right there in the hearing of everybody. The Lord, I think for other people's sake, not for his own sake, says to the demon, what's your name? And the demon says, my name is Legion because there's lots of us. And Matt helped me see earlier this week that a legion in the Roman world was 6,000 people. So I don't know if there's 6,000 demons, but the point is there's lots and lots of demons. And they beg him, please don't send us into the abyss. Don't send us to our eternal torment quite yet, please. There's a herd of pigs over there that Mark tells us numbered about 2,000 pigs. And they said, please, we beg of you, let us go into the pigs. And for whatever reason, Jesus Christ granted them their requests and the demons come out of this man and they go into the herd of pigs and in their, their desire for death and their suicidal, maniacal kind of spirit, they drove the pigs into a lake and all of them died. Now, if that story seems strange to you and freaks you out a little bit, it's because that story is strange and it ought to freak you out a little bit. The herdsmen who were there, the people who were there were, were alarmed. They were not astonished in the good way. They were astonished in the bad way. They actually said to Jesus, we don't know who you are, but here's what we would like. Leave. Please go away. They were scared. I think I would have been flipped out at this. You ever seen a herd of pigs just run into a lake and kill themselves? This is like mass pigicide or whatever you would call it. It's a strange story in some ways. But I think what it is meant to prove to us is that Jesus Christ has the power over every demon, no matter how many they are, no matter how powerful they are, no matter how much they have enslaved a man, an entire city, by their works. He walks into the situation, and they acknowledge him, and they tremble at him. They must. He speaks, and they have to listen to him. He commands, and they must obey him. They're not free. Did you notice they weren't free to do what they wanted to do? They asked his permission for what they could do. Beloved, we should not take the, the reality of demons lightly and we should not play around with them as though they're not frightening to us because we ought to tremble. The Bible says that even the archangel Michael would not dare to, to issue an accusation against Satan himself, but he just said, the Lord rebuke you. Even the archangel Michael did not want to play with evil spirits, but what we ought to do is rejoice in the fact that power came out from Jesus and he has all power over evil spirits. And they must do anything he tells them to do. Amen? We should tremble at him, not at them. We should seek him and let him deal with them. We should seek him and obey his commands as to whatever he does in our lives, whatever he commands us to do as far as our relationship goes with them. And if we need to rebuke, let us rebuke. If we need to to endure, let us endure. But let us fix our eyes on Jesus and fear him alone. Power came out from him, and he has all authority over the spiritual world. What teacher have you ever seen that is like that? I've never seen one. Fifth thing. This will be quick now. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Flip back to chapter seven, verses 36 through 50. There you'll see the story of a woman who came into a dinner where the Pharisees threw a banquet for Jesus. These are the holy people. These are the folks who care so much about all the dots and tittles of their, all their legalistic endeavors. And there they invite Jesus in and for some reason a prostitute feels the permission to just walk right into the house and no one had washed Jesus' feet like they really should have done and so she cries on his feet and wipes his feet with her hair and then anoints his feet with oil. There was nothing untoward going on here, beloved. She's doing what they should have done for him. She's washing his feet. She is absolutely moved to be near to Jesus because she knows her sin. She is convicted of her sin. And this Pharisee says... Well, if this Jesus knew who was a real prophet, he would know who this woman was, and he would never let this woman touch her, touch him. And so the Lord says, well, can I tell you a story? And basically, he tells a story that says, if someone is forgiven much, they love much. This woman has been forgiven much, and this is why she's doing what she's doing. This is an expression of love. And then he looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. What teacher do you know that has ever done that? Have you ever been to a sermon where someone pronounced the forgiveness of sins to somebody else on their own authority? I have many times when I've shared the gospel either with a brand new believer or with someone who's struggling with a sin in their lives as a pastor, I have counseled people to look to the cross and if I perceive genuine faith there, I feel uh, bold to comfort them that Christ has forgiven their sins. Little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if you're putting your faith in that, Jesus, I feel confidence to assure you that your sins are forgiven. But I would never, and God help me, that I would never say to somebody, I forgive your sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I hope you see this is one of the reasons why they killed him. They knew he was claiming the position of God. What teacher have you ever encountered that carried himself like this? Power came out from him to declare the forgiveness of sins. And the proof is in the pudding, beloved. That woman's life was transformed. And we know about that later in Luke's message. Hopefully I'll get the opportunity to point that out to you. Finally, very quickly, look at chapter 8, verse 22. And you'll see the power came out from Jesus to control the forces of nature. I don't have any time to summarize the story, but let me just say that at a crucial time in the disciples' lives, Jesus rebuked a storm and the storm actually obeyed him. I'm just flashing back to the night in Rogers when the, when the tornado came through and destroyed the Perry's house, and it shook our little townhouse so much, I literally sat on my steps and made peace with God, because I didn't know if I was going to make it out of there. Our entire townhouse was just shaking like this. We have one little closet where people could hide, and only Rachel, Bella, our dog, and, and Kim, my precious wife, could fit in there, so I put them in there, and I went and sat on our steps in faith. And I remember sitting there with a smile on my face saying, Jesus, it's been good. (laughs) And I love you. And I don't look forward to this process, but I'm ready to go be with you. I'm telling you the truth. That's what happened. And God spared us that storm. Can you imagine if somebody had the authority to walk outside and say, Stop? Again, don't need to yell. Don't got to burn incense. Don't have to put on fancy feathers. Just walk outside and say, Stop right now. Green sky, clear, thunder, lightning, stop. Tornado, stop, and the storm obeys him. That's what happened. Christ has all authority over nature. Beloved, power came out from Jesus to teach, to heal, to raise the dead, to deliver, to forgive sins, and to control nature. And again, as I've been saying over and over again, Luke is a man who did his homework. Luke is a man who vetted his sources and checked his facts. He is not trying to tell us fables that he heard. He told us in the first four verses of his gospel that he went out and researched the facts. You have to decide whether you believe him or not. But from his point of view, he is presenting to you and to me the results of his research. And for him, all of these things are absolutely confirmed to be true. He wants us, like the people then, to see the glory of Jesus, to believe the message of Jesus, and to surrender our lives to Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about just for another minute and then... I will pray. What are we to do with this Christ here on October 26, 2014? What are we to do? A lot of us have been walking with the Lord a long time, and I really fear that we're so familiar with these stories that it'll just bounce off of us. We'll go to church, nice sermon, you go about your day, and that's that. I fear that not mainly for you, but for my own heart. I really do. I think it would be grave sin, grave sin, to hear these stories and then stop short of encountering the Jesus that these stories are about. Because we're not here just to talk about things that happened a long time ago and admire them as though they're just stories from history and Jesus is just a historical figure. We are here to encounter this Christ. The Christ who had the power to do all of those things still has the power to do all of those things. And I would suggest to you that the Christ that actually did all those things is the Christ who's still actually doing all those things. I'm not saying that every day he walks into our lives and puts on a show. I'm not saying that. We could talk a lot about the people Jesus passed by on his way to heal others. We could talk about the cities he passed by to heal others. He's really wise in the distribution of his spirit. But I'm just saying, I'm telling you, as a follower of Christ, I feel convicted. Woe to me if I do my study, preach my sermon, and then act as though I haven't heard anything. Woe to me. I think Jesus has this church in Luke and Acts because he wants us to encounter Christ and shape a way of life in us. I think he wants us to live this pattern of preaching the gospel, demonstrating the power of the Spirit according to the will of the Father, and bringing much glory to God. I think that's what Christ wants for this church and for every church. We're going to see in Acts that that pattern shaped his ministry after he raised from the dead. He wants us to believe in him, he wants us to behold his glory, believe in his message, and surrender our lives to him. That's what he wants from us. And the question is will we do it? Or will we just go on with our day like nothing happened right now? And the last 40 minutes. After I studied Thursday for, I don't know, three or four hours, I had to go to a meeting over at Caribou by the Cub Foods, and I walked in and I ran into a pastor friend of mine, Doug Roman. He's the pastor of Bible Baptist Church down in Otsego, and he asked me how I was doing, and all I could think to say to him is, I'm feeling trembly, <laughs> because I had just spent hours meditating very carefully on every verse, every story of, of three chapters, and I felt so like in the best sense of the word, uh, afraid in the presence of Jesus. I love, I love that song, Amazing Grace. He caused me to fear and he relieved my fears and I was feeling that. I felt the fear of his presence and I felt the comfort of his presence and I simply pray that we would all feel that today, that we would encounter this Christ. So now the decision is upon you. What will you do? Will you walk away like nothing's happened? Or will you seek from this moment forward to behold the glory of Christ in these chapters of Luke Will you seek to believe in his message, really believe in his message, and show that by surrendering your life to him all the way? If you surrender your life to him, some of you, like the apostles, I feel confident, will be called to the kind of ministry that may cause you to be sent to another part of the world. Others of us will be like the demoniac who, once we're freed, Christ said to him, you know, the guy wanted to follow Christ elsewhere, and Christ said, no, 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 don't. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to go back home and tell everybody where you live what God has done for you. Some of us, God says, I've worked in your life. Now I want you to stay right where you're at for the glory of my name. So I don't know what the particulars are for each of us. But what I know is common is this. He wants us to behold his glory, believe his message, and surrender our lives. Will you do that today? Will you surrender to Christ. Let's pray now that God will help us. And I want to begin by just giving you a few moments of silence. And if God is stirring in your heart, please just in obedience, surrender yourself to him and let him draw near to you. Lord Jesus, power is still coming out from you to teach. And I pray that you would teach powerfully by your spirit power is still coming out from you to heal and deliver and even raise the dead. And I pray, Lord, that even in our midst, even in this little fellowship, even in our city, I pray that you would be pleased to heal, not for the sake of putting on a show, Lord, but for the sake of demonstrating the truthfulness of your identity and the truthfulness of your message. Lord, power is still going out from you, to deliver people from demonic activity, and I pray in your mighty name that if demons are at work in our lives or in our midst as a church, if they're at work in our city, if they're wreaking havoc in other churches in our area, I pray, Lord, that you would walk into the heart of Elk River and command the demons to be gone. If you would speak the word, they would have to obey you, and so I'm asking you, Jesus, in humble faith to fight for us, to be our king, to be our master, to strike them with the sword of your mouth. Show us, Lord, that you are the living Christ. Lord, power is going out from you to forgive sins. And I pray that if any are here today who need their sins forgiven, if they've never come to know you, if they have never come to trust in you for eternal life and a complete wiping out of the record that stands against them, I pray in your mighty name that you would draw them to come to you today and say simply, Jesus, please forgive me. And I ask you, Lord, for every humble heart that will do that, I ask you to speak those words. Your sins are forgiven. Lord, you even have the power over nature. And I don't know what your will is. I don't know what your ways are. I don't know what your purposes are in that effect in our day and in our time. But I pray, Lord, that if it seems right to you that you would show us that you are still the God who makes the sun to rise and set. You're still the God who commands the clouds. You're still the God who masters the animals of the field. I pray, Lord, that you would show oursel- yourself to be who you are. And I pray that we would bow before you in awe and wonder. I pray that we would surrender our lives to you. I pray that we would give up every other love so that we might have you. And I pray that you would use us for the glory of your name and the good of other people. Jesus, I trust that you're working in our midst, and so I want to give you my thanks and praise for what you're doing. We rise now, Lord, to sing to you because you're worthy of praise. In your powerful, in your mighty, your merciful name we pray, amen.